is my privilege this morning to be able to, with you, look into God's Word and see what it is that the effects of the new birth are in the lives, in the lives of those who have experienced it. And as you know, this is the fourth sermon in that series, starting out with what is the new birth, why is it necessary, and um, then last week, how does it happen, was Pastor Mark's burden. And then mine this week is what are the effects? Or we could say, in what ways does the new, new birth give evidence in our lives that we've experienced it? Clearly this morning, I want to make a distinction the Bible makes it, and we must. There are those who are in the world who are not born again. And it's clear that those who are born again have been brought out of the world. So those in the world who have no interest in the gospel, who have no concern for the God of heaven, who have no concern for living a life that reflects what the Bible speaks about, there's not a question about the fact that they have, are not born again, right? We in our church believe and we believe the Bible teaches that there's that distinction and we make that clear. But in, the gospel, in 1 John, the struggle was there were those who were in the church. They had left the church. They were in the congregation. They at some point had made a profession. They had been baptized and they had left the church. And it was obvious that the reason they had left the church, there was some teaching that had led them astray. Their statements that they had once embraced, they no longer embraced. The life they once pursued, they no longer pursued. And it created quite the confusion in the life of those who remained. And so it is this morning, my burden that through this sermon, you who are Christ would see that in your life those evidences are there and from it that you yourself would be assured and enjoy and delight in Him. That's the point. All right, so this morning then, as a young Christian, I remember a conversation on a construction site with a man named John. He was convinced he was a Christian. But he was also convinced that he nor anyone else could ever have any assurance that they were going to heaven. I remember as I watched John's life, his tongue and his demeanor and everything about his life reflected this anemic view of Christian evidence or assurance. And if you've been around the church long, you will hear this statement. Many say they're Christians, but their life leaves little evidence that they are true Christians. John was one of those kinds of people. And as a young believer, I thought, you know, that's strange. I thought that when you were born again, there came a confidence. But then in my life as a young believer, navigating the different places where I went to church, I heard many who would testify as simply a church goer, and they would clearly identify with church going. And when asked, would say, certainly I'm going to heaven. With quite confidence they would say that. They seemed assured, even convinced without question, that their future was sealed. Yet, their love for heavenly things was completely absent. They certainly had a passion and a love, but it was clear that it was a love for the world, a passion that I had before I'd experienced the new birth. 
They would occasionally attend church and appreciated their membership, but viewing it as family, now that was taking it just a bit too far. It was amazing. They felt comfortable in their casual commitment. And the definition that many placed on this kind of statement was a carnal Christian. I remember as a young believer in the circles I ran, that was a, a statement that many made about the other. They're just carnal Christians. Oh, they're believing. They're going to heaven. Just carnal Christians. So that was the excuse given. Right? It's sad. Then there are those who cannot rest in Christ. Maybe you're one of those. You're not like that. You, you don't confess a faith that you don't practice. Maybe you're like me early in my Christian life. I remember laying down at night and thinking, Lord, if I'm really not saved, would you save me again? Have you ever done that? Of course all of you have, right? We've all had those moments when we weren't quite sure we were going to make it more sure by saying, Lord, if it's not... If I've never been born again, please save me. How many times have all of us found ourselves in that place? So what is the answer? Can we know or do we have to be like John? Wait till we die to find out? Are there, are there things that we experience having been born again that give the clear evidence that we're truly one of God's? Are there those things? Can we have an assurance or is it merely an arrogant confidence what about if my commitment to Christ is simply casual I'm an attender every once in a while rarely read his Bible should I be able to say with confidence I'm a Christian can I live like I want love the world and have some assurance of heaven if I have my name on a church roll so there's some in here this morning who need assurance. And I'm certain there are some who need to be shaken from your false assurance. Right? And so that's what 1 John's all about. The scriptures have much to say about this point. It's really important. Pastor Mark recently took us through 1 John, and it was there that we learned all of the things that John had intent for those to whom he wrote. And he addressed them in the most tender ways. He would say, little children. He would use words like beloved. Far from upbraiding or reprimanding them, his concern was to comfort and encourage their hearts in the faith. The very thing I have as my intent this morning. That you who are God's children would know it and enjoy it and live it out in the light of the scripture and so it is from this book that I want you to notice seven important reasons that we recognize the effects of the new birth and from it establish an assurance in the new birth it's these that our joy may be complete John's design is that those who are in the church and were truly Christ could experience in this life a joy that's complete as John Piper puts it, it's a Christian hedonism. It's one that delights in God. It's one that doesn't walk around with a long and hopeless face or a heart that's dull and unmoved by the work of God in Christ. Just the opposite. He's the joyful of all men, those who are in Christ. It's what Jonathan Edwards would say is the greatest statement of our being born again. 
that delight in God, that joy in Christ. What else? In 1 John 2 and 28, we would delight in His coming. The effects of our born-againness and the assurance that comes from it gives us a great delight in His coming. It enables us to progress in our purity. It gives us confidence in prayer. It gives us confidence for the day of judgment. And it gives us this victory over fear. And it gives us a victory over the world. All of these things come and flow from after having recognized in ourselves the effect of the new birth and the assurance that it gives. These things are ours. That's what you see as God's people we want. It's the reality of the experience that comes to us in this life. Why wait to heaven to enjoy all the things of which he's purchased on our part? That's John's point. <clears throat> Here's the question. Does God want you to have a false assurance? Absolutely not. Would the devil want you to have true assurance? Absolutely not. But God wants you to have true assurance and the devil wants you to have false assurance. So this morning, if you're truly God's, listen to these simple things from 1 John that you might be encouraged in your faith if you're here. And you're one like Justin had mentioned. You're not a Christian. Our goal is that this morning God by His grace would deliver you with this what we're calling the new birth or being born again. And you too will come along with us to enjoy the good things of God this side of heaven prepared for the other side when Christ returns. Evidence has but one purpose, doesn't it? Why in the world would any lawyer ever bring evidence to a court? What's his goal? It's to prove something, isn't it? The effects of something are but for one purpose, to prove something. And when we proved it, then it's your good pleasure to enjoy it at its death. All right? So this morning, the letter as we have it is that very encouragement. I remember growing up and after having children, one of our daughters... Haley would say at night, I love you means everything, mom and dad. She'd wait. If we didn't say anything, she'd say it again. I love you means everything. You know what she was wanting? You know. You want the same thing, don't you? She wanted to hear her mom and dad say, we love you. Her heart could be comforted. She can enjoy her night's rest. That's what we want to hear, isn't it, as Christians? And I hope from these verses that's the very thing you hear. So then what does it mean in 1 John 5 when he starts this particular chapter with this word? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, notice this, has been born of God. This born of God is the motivation or is the reason that a man believes that Jesus is the Christ. I want you to think with me just a minute. What are the implications of this idea of being born of God? Well, maybe for us, because it's so easy for us to compare something one with another and then learn from that comparison. So think just a moment about the day you were born physically, your conception in your mother's womb. At that very moment, you had what is called a human nature. You weren't 
your mom wasn't going to have a dog. She was going to have a son or a daughter. When you were born, there were certain things that she could expect from you. One is that you would cry selfishly when you wanted something. Another is that she would teach you how to obey. Another is that you would lie even from your womb. That's what the Bible says. You had what is called a human, fallen, sinful nature. It's hard to say something like this, but the Bible says, and Jesus himself said it, that in that we reflect what we are. And even in 1 John, the clear distinction has been made about the children of God and the children of the devil. They bear that nature. And the Bible's clear about it. And so it is those who are born of God have experienced a new nature. The one we were born with that we received in Adam has been by the power of God changed to a new nature. So the implication of the very statement of born again is that you have a new nature. One effect of the new birth is that you sit there different than you were, not exactly what you want to be, but nothing like you used to be. Is that you? Second thing about this idea of being born of God is the fact that into a family you come. Most immediate, as a baby, we come into an earthly nuclear family. We have a mom and dad, and if we're not the firstborn, then we have brothers and sisters. But also, as an individual, we're born into a bigger family. The family called in the Bible the world. The world which was made by Christ, but when he came into it, it knew him not. That's the family as well that we're born into. And so in this reality of a new birth or born of God, we then are transformed according to the Scripture into a different family. What's so unique about that? The family that gave you your physical birth holds a special place in your life. For the most part, and when God's common grace is over a nation, families have a vital place in its purposes and its life. Your parents hold a special place even in the lives of the most honorary of people. Have you ever noticed that? Their mother can have an effect on them that nobody else can because there's that special place. Even though their nature is clearly fallen, they're a son of Adam. There yet remains this reality that a family holds a unique place in the life of that individual. So with a Christian, if you have been born again, according to the Scripture, the family of God has a special place in your life. You're not born without a family. You're born into a family. And so it is that the implication of the very statement born of God has with it this idea and the effect of you having been birthed into a family, not left all alone, not out in an orphanage, but a part of a family. You're a part, the Bible says. So it is when you're born into this world, you've got a fallen nature, you're 
immediate family is yours. The third thing that's clear is there's a particular type of trust that you have even as a fallen human being. It's clear as you watch us live, we trust who? Who do we trust? We trust ourselves, right? If you, when you were lost, who did you trust? You trust yourself. You trust your own thoughts about how life ought to go. You trust your own feelings about the way people think of you. You trust your own desires and goals about what will make you happy. That's what you trust. That's the way you live your life. You embrace a philosophy. It might be of a worldly philosophy. It might be a direct philosophy from some philosopher. But you embrace these things, you trust them, and you move about in life. When we're born of God, there's a different, according to the Scripture in this very, in verse 5, there's a different way in which we live. There's a different faith or trust that's now ours. It's a faith that embraces Christ, the truth of God. And notice the fifth thing. When you're born into the world, you have a fight. What is that fight? Maybe you don't think of it like this, but it's true, and you watch all men in this life embrace it. Their fight is to get as much of this world as they can. They want to be successful in it. Whatever it is they believe that will bring them their greatest joy, they pursue it with everything in them. They fight to attain it. It speaks of an effort. They want the praise of men, so they shape their lives accordingly. They want the possessions this world offers, so they pursue without rest often to get it. And they fight, and they fight. And you and I have experienced that as part of the world. There's times we didn't like it. It's simple reality. But what about when a man's born of God? The Bible indicates there's this different fight. Now what is it? The Bible says this becomes now for you and for me a different kind of fight. We fight now to long for the things of God. We fight to resist the power, the position, the possessions, or the praise of this world. What we once longed for now are the very things that we strive with everything God gives us to overcome. So the very implication of this statement that you're born of God has these four clear things a part of it. So in your life as a Christian, to one degree or another, how do you see them worked out in you? That's a good question. As you read 1 John, you'll see all of these things being consistently and continually encouraged upon the believer's in the church that John wrote to. How are these things being worked out? What do they look like in your life? What ways are they different and have they changed? And might I say this at this point. These things to varying degrees should be in every believer's life. It's not that those who are new or young in the faith will be at the same place as those who are mature or have been longer in the faith. But in varying degrees, they should be in every believer. If there's no change in your nature, if your family are those that are in the world, if your faith is in yourself, 
And your fight is for what you can get in this life. And brothers and sisters, it's clear according to the Scripture that you've never experienced what John said as the new birth or born again. And to have any sense of assurance would only be false in your case and deadly at best. If you're a Christian and these things are a part of you in small form or large form, the light in the God that saved you. How much did you have to do with your first birth? The same amount that you had to do with your second birth. Go forth in the life that God gave you and rejoice. But notice, the second thing he makes clear about those who have been born of God is that they believe that Jesus is the Christ. Have you ever wondered why he put it just in this way? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. What we believe concerning Jesus is crucial. It gives clear evidence of our new birth. It's not a definition that we can be sloppy with. It cannot be like that, brothers and sisters. You see, there are those here who are electricians, and you might think yourself to be one. But should you reach into a panel with power, the others who know what you're about to do would say, Brother, that's foolish. Know what you're doing. And so with this reality of the definition of Jesus being the Christ, it's critical. Say, well, everybody believes that Jesus is the Christ. Everybody during this time of the year, it's Christmas. Everybody has sentimental realities about the baby in the manger. Exactly. John's goal is not sentimentality. The reality is that can lead you and I into a different place. If we are Christians and our mere definition is sentimental, then it won't produce the type of assurance that will give you confidence and joy in believing. And if sentimentality is all you have, it will leave you in the end, in the day of judgment, hopeless. So what is it? Why did he put it this way? The battle has been fought from the beginning, brothers and sisters. From the beginning, this statement has been battled. And it's so important and it's still ongoing. The Bible's clear about it. The name Jesus was the one the angels had spoken to Mary and Joseph to give to Jesus. It's the name that came with it, this statement. He would save his people from their sins. This name, Jesus, indicates this. Listen with care. It's vital. Your eternity rests on it. The name given by him that the angel was by the angel at his birth, birth, the name that identifies him as a man. Fully man. Not a mere mirage or hull of a man, not simply a ghost-like appearance. He possessed a body like yours with all of its limitations. The man Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, grew and developed. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was weak. He wept. He sweat drops of blood. He slept. He used the restroom. He had earthly parents. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. He was a man. He worked and earned a living. He had brothers and sisters. He did life like you and me, yet without sin. Not without temptation. 
He was in all points tempted like us, in every way and beyond what we will ever know. Yet as an infant, as a child, as an adult, he lived as a man. He never sinned. No guile was found on his lips. He lived exactly like we live, yet without sin. He was a man fully. And you see, that battle was going on in this particular book of the Bible. There were those who were saying that it's impossible for God to become a man. And as you and I consider it, and we try to put it together and add it up in a formula and put it under a microscope, we might come to the same conclusion. But you see, the point is, that's not the way we've been called to embrace the Christ. It's to trust God and what He said. The evidence is clear, according to the Gospel writers, that He was a man. What did this particular writer say of Him? I saw Him. I handled Him. I heard Him. This is the one who came by water in baptism, by blood at the cross, and was testified to by the Spirit at the transfiguration, at the baptism, and at the resurrection. He was a man when he died at Calvary, bled. When they drove the nails in his hand, it was through his flesh. When he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, it was real. Why is that so important? Because he came to save you and me, who are men. The writer of Hebrews said it's so important. It laid the Jewish people aside in the book of Hebrews, thinking that their Savior was a man. As they considered such a thought, they said angels are greater in power than men. Surely, he could not have been a man. He was a man. Your eternity rests on it, brothers and sisters. Because He came to save those like ourselves. And He was willing to be identified with us and call us brother. He could have left us to ourselves. He could have chosen to save the angels. That's not what He did. And so when you put together the reality of the effects in your life of the new birth, it's this amazement that will grip your soul, that will animate your eyes, that will drive your faith that God became a man for you and me. It's no mere formality. It's an utter necessity. And if you and I would say, well, you know, I've never thought of that, I would encourage you, think on it often. It will amaze you. It will amaze you. That he went to the length that he must to save you. Even to this length of becoming a man, that he might die in our place. So when the writer of this book says, that you and I must believe that, the G, that Jesus, he's speaking of the historical man born in the manger, baptized in the Jordan, crucified at Golgotha, raised on the third day. That's who he's speaking about. He is the Christ. 
So what do we know and understand by that statement that this man was what he was? Certainly he was a man. But according to the Bible, he was the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3 and 15. When God made the promise on the day of the fall that there would be one from the womb of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. That truth followed all through prophecy in the Old Testament. Bore witness to by the prophets who yearned to see that day according to Peter and yet realized it was for a future day that they wrote for us. He is the true Israel according to Isaiah. He is the true servant of God. Through him clearly as we understand creation came into existence. By him we understand it continues in its place. We know even from his birth as a baby, the angels bowed at his feet. From James, we realize that the demons shudder at his name. He could speak and the winds and the waves obeyed his voice. There wasn't a demon or a devil in hell that stood against anything he asked of them. This, you see, clearly indicates that he's the promised redeemer given, of us, given to us in the Old Testament, spoken and purposed under the Old Covenant. The one in whom the hope would be placed for all of Israel. The one that the Bible speaks of in this way, he rules the world in righteousness. All things have their existence by him, through him, and for him. And in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's an amazing statement, but it's true in your future and destiny and your hope lies in that reality. You see, you ought to sit at home or drive your car or sometimes when you're working and think of that reality. The one who came as a man was fully God. And in this is our hope. But I want you to notice from this verse the most amazing thing. He's a man like us. He is God of very God. The Bible says the reason we can embrace or believe that, I, I remember a lady saying one time, how in the world are you going to explain that to a six-year-old? My statement was, how are we going to explain that to a 60-year-old? Right? But here's the truth of it. What produced belief in Jesus as the Christ? You were born of God. You see, the reality is that left to ourselves and our own human mind and nature, we'd never come to that conclusion. We, like others, would divide him up and say he was a mirage or he was part this or part that or simply housed in a body. But when God comes to you and speaks in the day of his power and raises you to new life and quickens you, then you delight in this truth is that you, brothers and sisters, is it that this very truth delights your soul? It doesn't leave you in a sense of confusion. It leaves, it leaves you in a sense of praise and worship. You don't try in every way to figure it out. It's beyond us. But you delight in it as it's been given. You rejoice over it as one of God's children. And you put faith in Him. And you are confident. You see, this fact is... Jesus is not open to our definition. 
God defined his son. He delights in him. And he's called us to the same. To pare him down in a way that we can put our little puny minds around it is to destroy it altogether. And to leave you with no assurance at all. No confidence. Your heart will condemn you. I'm convinced every PhD that teaches in a seminary who's denied this truth or the scripture itself when he sits at night, wrestles with his own heart. He knows there's something wrong. There can be no confidence when a man doesn't believe that Jesus is the Christ. If you're one who believes it, brothers and sisters, buy it. Experience the joy that John speaks of as coming to those like ourselves that can be complete. Experience the hope even on the day of judgment. In this life, the goodness that comes to us through it. Notice a third thing that's real clear in this whole book. But let me note it here. Becoming a faithful lover. And you see, this is so important. Because the Bible speaks of us as a lost individual as hating and hated. Enmity with God. We're a friend of the world and we're God's enemy. But when a person has experienced this born-againness or this new birth, the Bible makes it clear like this. We become those who love the Father and who love those who are born of the Father. I love the way he puts this. Why do you think maybe here he's put it in this way? Everyone who loves the Father. He has in other places and will, and even in this verse, put everyone who loves God. But here he put everyone who loves the Father. The Father, again, gives us a picture of intimacy, doesn't it? And I think it's on this idea that a guy like Jonathan Edwards says that the greatest testimony that we've been changed or born again is the way in which we love the Father. When the whole Old Testament was summed up, how did he sum it up? That we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? First and foremost commandment. The reason everything was written from Genesis to Malachi, the purpose of the temple and all of its sacrifices was that you and I intimately would delight in and rejoice over and be in love with the God that created the world. And the second, like it, that we love our neighbors as ourselves. So love embodies the whole truth of the Ten Commandments, which so many people see as so negative, and the whole truth of the Old Testament, which some would see as relegated to an old time in history, which, of, which is of no value. But when Jesus summed it all up, it was just like that, right? So think of it in this way. What's the effect and what's an evidence that the new birth has been experienced in your life? It's that you love the Father. What does that mean? I love God. Intimacy and relationship. I want you to note how John in this very book speaks about the Christian experience. Very often we'll ask this question, are you saved? There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good statement. But I want you to notice how John puts it. In the first chapter he says, 
concerning this thing of salvation, do we have fellowship with one another? And our fellowship is, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What He equates as what we call saved is this word fellowship. It speaks of this intimacy or relationship and this Christian experience that we have with the Father and with the Son. It's a delight in conversation, an enjoyment of one's company. Is that what we have? Notice another word that he uses in chapter 2. Knowing him. Knowing him. He's not talking about an intellectual ascent. Does anyone know in the book of Genesis what the Bible used when Adam knew Eve and what all that meant? He knew her deeply and experientially, right? It wasn't a distant knowing. It wasn't the God who's there and I'm here. So in this gospel, the way he describes this thing that we often call, are we saved? It's knowing him. Do you know him? And another word that he uses is abides in him. In chapter 2 he uses this, those who abide Remain, continue. It's not a fleeting visit. It's an ongoing life-giving attachment. It's the very way John writes to illustrate the evidence of the new birth. It's this intimacy of relationship with our Father. Isn't it neat to watch a young child grow up by his father and over the years? I love to see those 18-year-old boys grab their daddy around the neck and give him a big old hug and love on him. Isn't that neat? They're not ashamed of such a thing as that. There's no catch in their spirit to ex express intimacy to their daddy. What about for you and for me as Christians? Maybe it is that we're simply learning this as a young believer. But what we ought to be growing into is this reality of the relationship that's ours in the new birth. He's our Father. And the Bible says the relationship we have is not one of merely king and servant, but father and son. It's not one where we simply hear His words and go dutifully about His business. It's one where we hear His words and our hearts are moved and in love we go do what He says. You see, that's the truth of it. And so it is in this place that one of the effects of that new birth is this very thing. We love the Father. But notice with me, so that we won't get confused, so there's so many that say, oh, I love God. <laughs> I, I guarantee you, in, in the United States, if you ask a hundred people, how many would say, I love God? Ninety-nine? Maybe? Probably? Well, notice this. This particular section of Scripture says those who love Him obey His Word. They view His Word in this way. Not a burden at all, but a delight. Isn't that neat? The two things that give reflection that your hearts have been changed is this. You love His Word. What's the expression, the greatest expression that you love Him? You find out what he says and you delight to go and do it. And you view them not as a burden, but as a blessing. 
You don't read the Bible and say, God wants me to serve him in this way. And say, oh, man, what a bummer. Is there another thing I can do? No, no. It's neat, isn't it? And the way this book unfolds it. Those who love God obey his word. It's not like John experienced as an unconverted Jew when he just dutifully went about serving God, doing the Ten Commandments. Not at all. He delighted to do what God said. His heart had been changed in the reflection of it. Was he loved to do what God said? And he didn't view them in any way as a burden or as a weight to carry, but as a delight to obey. And in closing, these things follow from this love of God. You see, we can say, well, I love everybody. How many people say that? Who do you love? Oh, I love everybody. So we got 99 out of 100 saying, I love God. We got the 100 out of 100 saying, I love everybody. But the Bible says the best way that we know that we love one another is we love God. And what flows from that, we love his word. What, view, what flows from that is we don't see it as a burden. What occurs from that is we love those who are born of him. You look around the pews of these churches, and you look and you say, they don't look like me. A lot of them don't act like me, but I love them. The same spirit that's in them is in me. The same God that saved them, saved me, saved them. They're going the same place. They think the same things. I love them. That statement means this. If they have a need, you meet it. You take time to hear their concerns. You pray with them. That's what John says it looks like. You meet together. You enjoy one another. You talk about the things that you enjoy. That's your Savior and your future and the way God's helping you. You see, it's so clear in Scripture that those who are in this life, who have experienced a new birth, these things are a part of their lives in one way or another, to one degree or another. So ask yourselves, is it that you love God's children and love to be with them? And say, well, you know, they're kind of a burden or a pain. Well, then normally what you're going to find in your life is his word is the same thing. It's kind of a burden. And you don't really like to obey it. As a matter of fact, you don't really like God at all. That's the way it goes. But if you find yourselves in love with God's people, this is where it's going to flow from. You love God. You love his word. It's not a burden. You love to obey it. You delight in him. Sometimes you're driving down the road and a tear comes down your eye. You just thought about the way he sent his son for you. You can't believe it. It's amazing. It's amazing. Somebody, he's provided for you in this life in some amazing way. He sustains you every day. He's given you a job. He feeds you and clothes you and keeps you. And you think about that and your heart's stirred. And the Spirit of God brings to your mind a scripture verse. And you're amazed by it. That's the way it works. Then you see somebody, you know they're a Christian, you want to do something, you want to bless them. The Bible says in Galatians, do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. So you find in your life that you love doing good. You want to bless somebody. You want to encourage them along with a word. 
Your goal is not to take your tongue and tear them down. It's to build them up. Is that you? It's the effect of the new birth, brothers and sisters. In closing this morning, the question comes to you and to me, is there enough evidence to convict you of being born again? Can you, by looking at your nature, the family you delight in, the faith you have, the fight you fight, the definition or belief you have in Jesus as the Christ, the way you love the Father, the way you obey and delight in His Word, the way you love His children, are those things a part of you in some way? Do you long for them to be more evident in your life? If you see them there, I want to encourage you to take heart. God loves you and His desire is to give you the kingdom. He wants you to enjoy everything that He's given to you in Christ. He wants your heart to be full in this life. And so I would ask you, if you're His, what would keep you from such a thing? And this morning as we leave, then may God help you Enjoy all his goodness in Christ that he's given you. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the new birth. It's nothing we, we come up with ourselves. It's nothing we designed. It's all that we've been given. We thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you that you've given us him and you gave us the greatest of all gifts. And so, Lord, your people this morning, might they enjoy you to, to their fullest. Might they enjoy the things of God. And if there's one here who's not saved, or two, or three, or more, who've never experienced a new birth, who believe in a God that's not real, might you not leave them in their sins, but save them by your grace and kindness. Lord, we beg you for Christ's sake in these ways to do your good work among us. In Christ we pray. Amen.